Hi everyone, uh, I'm Gary Hickey from the Research Design Service Southeast, and welcome to that co-production podcast. And this podcast is a partnership between the Research Design Service Southeast and the Centre for Engagement Dissemination, which are both parts of the National Institute for Health Research. And today we're going to be talking about the challenges of commissioning co-produced research. And joining me today on the podcast uh, is my co-host, uh, Katie Turner, who's a researcher who draws on her lived experience and amongst many other things is a part of the patient and public involvement team here at the Research Design Service Southeast. Hello Katie and how are you? Hello Gary, hello everybody and I'm very well thank you. Thank you and we are absolutely delighted to uh, have uh, Doreen Tembo as our guest today and Doreen's a senior research manager uh, in the patient and public involvement team at the National Institute for Health Research Evaluation Trials and Studies Coordinating Centre. So hello, Doreen, and welcome. Hi, Gary, um, and hi, Katie. Nice, nice to see you again. Fantastic. Doreen, on this podcast, we always begin with a, a, a nice, uh, fun, friendly icebreaker. So our question to you today is, what is the best advice you've ever been given? Um, that's a good question, Gary, and a hard one. I've received a lot of uh, wanted um, advice and sometimes unwanted advice from people. <laughs> so um, at the time, I think, especially when the advice you might think is unwanted at the time, you might think, you know, this isn't really what I want to hear or need. And I think it takes some, some deep self-reflection to see the value of some of this advice. And part of this is, I, I think I, going back to when I was doing my PhD, I think um, at Oxford, I came to a journey in my PhD where I was really thinking, you know, is this worth it? Should I continue with this? Should I just quit? Um, and a lot of people gave me advice I wanted to hear, which is, yes, you should, you know, you've done your best. Um, but then um, I, uh, I had a call from a friend that I hadn't actually heard from um, in a very long time, a, a really, really great person, a French Canadian, a friend who's a human rights activist and she called out to the blue an international call which at the time was expensive as well and she kind of talked me out of it um soon after her my mother called and I thought to me I'm gonna, I'm gonna get the love and comfort and the you've done enough and, and you know you should quit now <laughs> but my mother also gave me some um tough love and uh, what they both said interestingly um is you know for things that are valuable and important you know when you quit you fail um, and if it's really, really important to you, you need to stick with it. So this wasn't advice I wanted to hear, but it's actually really served me well um, throughout life because I think it's really um, important. I think it, it emphasizes the need to, first of all, identify what you value and what's important, and then to reassess this from time to time. And if it's still valuable um, to weather the storm and stick with it and see it through, I think that this can be um, applied to co-production. Wise words. So I think that you can really um, apply this to, to co-production because, um, you know, I think going back to the PhD process, and I do think you can probably run a whole podcast on people's PhD experiences <laughs> and the dark periods, um, but that's probably um, not easy to tie into co-production. But I think, I think thinking about co-production, co-production um, isn't easy. 
it takes time. You need to assess what's working, what isn't working. And then to kind of reiterate, make adjustments. And most importantly, I think for me is to stick with it if it's working. Because co-production is about building um, equitable relationships or leveling you know, power relationships. All that takes time and, and effort, especially when you're working with different stakeholders. You have to be flexible, empathetic, use quite a lot of time and resources, especially a lot of personal resources and be really patient. So uh, speaking as a person that's been involved in uh, co-produced projects, it's worth it and it's rewarding. And it's something that I go back to always thinking is, is ultimately valuable and enriching, you know, to really partner with public members and other stakeholders to produce research. That's, that's actually more likely to have impact on the people that it's actually meant to benefit. So I think for me, that was a, a really important life lesson. You know, listen to people, um, even if the advice seems like <laughs> it might not be what you want. It can have you know, lifelong implications where I think it gives you a really positive outlook um, on life. Thank, thank you, Doreen. Yes, thank you, Doreen. Yes, I found that really interesting how you were linking um, that personal sort of experience, Doreen, to, to co-production and talking about the value of it, which leads really um, nicely into to the question that I have to, to ask you. And that is, to what extent do you think that co-production is valued by the organisation that you work for? That's the National Institute of Health Research. And I asked that in the context of uh, co-production as, as an approach, if you like, to, re to doing research. Yeah, um, I think co-production is highly valued by the NIHR, you know, as part of a spectrum of approaches. So as you said, Katie, that it's an approach. Um, and I think we need to think about patient and public involvement more widely if we're looking at that stakeholder within co-production um, as a continuum. At one extreme, you have just informing people, which might be what you need to actually do for that project. Or you can consult them, um, collaborate with them, co-produce with them. And at the very other extreme, you have um, end user, you know, led approaches or service user led approaches. The, the MIHR recognizes that it's not really a, a one size fits all approach. And you have to actually pick the approach that works for that particular context or for that particular research study. So the MIHR highly values co-production as one of the approaches that you can take when you're partnering with evidence users, one of which is the public, patients, carers, um, and service users. So at NetCC, in actual fact, um, our, our interest in co-production, I think actually predates the identification of, of co-production as a necessary strategic focus following the um, 2014 Breaking Boundaries Review and Consultation, which then led to the Going the Extra Mile strategy around patient and public involvement, which then highlighted the need to explore co-production. In, in a sense, I think we at NetCC were looking at it not so much from only the, the stakeholder that is the public member or the, the patient and, and public or care or service user. We were looking at it holistically, as in who are the stakeholders that you need to involve um, in the research process. And we call these, these evidence users. And, and we recognize the need to actually bring them together. I think a way that we, we do this quite well is by bringing them together to set agendas for research um, and priorities for research. 
So we, we've had, for example, bespoke workshops where we bring all these people together to actually say what's important for that particular community of those different stakeholders. And more famously, you know, we work with uh, James Lind Alliance Priority Setting Partnerships, which is all about co-production and bringing the stakeholders that need to make these decisions about what needs to be funded together. So we always recognize that, you know, research has to have input from all key stakeholders because then we know that it's more likely to have impact, um, be adopted, but also be implemented in practice. And I mean, I think you would agree that that's the ultimate aim of applied health research. You want it to be applied at the end of the research process. Thanks, Doreen. Um, I mean, as you well know that co-production doesn't it presents particular challenges, I think, especially, you know, with the emphasis on developing uh, relationships, for example, and the sort of time and, and perhaps the, the money and the resources that that takes. So how well do you think at the National Institute for Health Research, do you accommodate that approach to co-production, if you like? How do the governance process and the management of research accommodate the time and effort that things like developing relationships take? Um, I would say in some sectors, we do that very well, and in some not so well. So a bit of a yes and no answer. Um, so, so the NIHR, uh, as you know, Gary, funds three different types of research. You've got research programs, which are, you know, medium term kind of uh, projects, three years, mostly at a minimum, five years for the very big program grants. But we also have um, what we call infrastructure grants, and they kind of fund organizations that often are funded for about five years. So the research design service that you're based at, the the biomedical research centers and those kind of organizations. And they are often funded for about five years. Then we have the personal fellowships. These are personal awards that are given to people to, to further research in particular areas. So I think that some research projects, even you know, given the fact that they're three years and often for the first year you're looking at them setting up. So the, the actual period that they're carrying out research can be two years from a three-year project that we've had great examples where people, even in that short time scale, make real, um, you know, relationships and collaborations, even with, I would say, seldom heard or underrepresented groups, such as, you know, prisoners, for example, very difficult to access, young children or people with stigmatized health conditions. So it can be done in a short term research project, but I think there's always the question of what happens to those people once that project is done. Sometimes just building a relationship can take a year or two, then you've got a year left, you know, in your funding. So that funding structure of giving people funding for say three years or less can actually impede um, co-production because you don't have the time to really build a relationship, especially if your aim is to build it with a wide um, swathe of the community. However, I do think that the um, infrastructure grants that I mentioned, the kind of five-year grants do give more room and scope for um, real co-production, especially when you are looking at working with a community that is in the same geographical setting as you are. It's easier to come to an organization rather than a, um, a, a research project. Um, and also you have the time to actually build those relationships, even if the group you're engaging isn't geographical and it's centered around a condition or a service. So um, I would say that the infrastructure grants probably have demonstrated more impact around working in a co-produced way than you might have in a research project 
which will be more about really good collaboration, which I think ventures towards co-production, but is, is you know, somewhat different. I do think that, uh, you know, they, they are um, challenges that we face from a commissioning um, standpoint. The NIHR is really well known for involving patients and the public, as well as other stakeholders in commissioning processes. And it's, it's you know, quite unique in this, although now more funders are actually doing this as well where they involve the um, public in priority setting, um, setting the agenda for research, um, prioritizing the research that comes in and also being involved in funding decisions and being encouraged to be involved in the dissemination processes. But often this is um, patient and public involvement and will be more consultation and collaboration than it would be co-produced research, partly due to the fact that you know, the NIHR is contracted to deliver um, um, research in a, in a really rigorous way. And often this creates rigidity in approaches. You know, as an example, um, funding committees, you know, before COVID, now we've all gone um, virtual, um, used to meet in London over two days in the middle of the day. That really um, excludes certain type of people from being involved in that process. And it's, a, it's already a predetermined way that people are going to meet. So it's not decided in a co-produced way. But I think what I have to say is when I did attend these committees, I couldn't actually tell who the public members were. Um, and you could say that they'd got native maybe, but I think it's more of a case of the fact that they were treated equally. Um, during the breaks, everybody was laughing and talking to each other. Everybody has equal voting rights in deciding what gets funded. So I think even within the rigidity that might perhaps limit how much co-production you can have, there's a real sense that public members come to the table as equal partners, have equal voting rights, have an equal voice, can speak, can speak whenever they want, really. So I think that there is a leveling of power within those committees, but it's, it, we, we do need to acknowledge that our funding processes aren't predisposed to really facilitating co-production throughout the whole commissioning process. Thanks, thanks, Dory. And, and just something else to throw in, and this, this just came from a conversation I had with someone this week, and, and they said they would like the National Institute for Health Research to kind of encourage co-production, this is their words, by more of a bottom-up approach. So, so funding, if you like, those organisations that represent uh, particular groups of the public or, or indeed patients. And so they would lead, if you like, on the research and co-produce that way. And I, I don't know if you've got anything you want to say um, about that and the extent to which the National Institute for Health Research does that um, already or could do that in the future. I think it depends on the program, Gary. So it depends on what we're commissioning, because often um, we are commissioning applied health research that is quite technical in nature. So often what we encourage is for the, the team to be interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, which means you're really working with different people, including members of the public, and those user-led or community organizations being part of that team as well. But um, I think from a practical standpoint, there would be some difficulty in a community-led or user-led organization leading an applied health research project. Um, I think perhaps if we look at other programs, for example, the ones that lead on service delivery, especially say if it was social care um, or public health, you could then be looking at a person that perhaps could be leading from a, from a community perspective. But I think with the more technical programs that we have, such as the health technology assessment or the E&E program, 
it's actually quite difficult to see how somebody who doesn't have the technical expertise could lead the team. I think from the applied end, it would be quite difficult. But if we were um, funding research that was more community-centered, perhaps less technical, then, then we would be looking perhaps at um, having leads that were um, from community organizations. So community organizations are not barred from being funded. But I think what we encourage is not having a researcher just run off and do their own thing or a clinician run off and do their own thing or a community organization run off and do their own thing. What we try to encourage really is to bring those different parties together in a research team and then have them work together. Because I think that's what co-production really is. It's not user-led research, it's actually people working together with no discernible person having more power than the other. In actual fact, a research team will have power differentials, as I'm sure we, we all know, because you do have to have a lead. But I think it's, it's, a, it's a question about the team being okay with that, perhaps nominating that lead, because you have to have a lead. Um, so it's, it's that the NIHR thing values the lead, being a person that has the technical know-how to deliver the subject, sorry, to deliver the project, but also be a specialist in the subject. Mm. I find that really interesting, Doreen, because that's made me think of a little bit of reflecting on my own situation in that I have, if you like, a foot in both camps in that I'm sort of a trained researcher, but but I work from a lived experience perspective. And I often think that perhaps we could think about having a bit more of that sort of dual identity because that may be one of the solutions to you know the problem that you described about well you know does a member of the public have the necessary sort of technical know-how or, or level of knowledge but I think you can possibly have both um, and I'm, I'm not sure if you know sometimes we, we tend to divide the public and patient into one sort of sector and those that are trained in academia or research in another and, and it's very difficult to sort of see the meeting whereas I think that you can have both in in one sort of person but anyway just food for thought I think. No I, I actually totally agree and I think sometimes um, when we do have academics leading projects most of them don't actually disclose what health conditions or service uh, lived experience they have so I think a lot of academics also actually do have that insight as patients. So there isn't a clear dichotomy, I think, between a patient and an academic or a researcher or a clinician. So I, I think your point stands, um, Katie, and that then IHR, you know, would not stand in the way of an academic who also has the condition researching the condition. We do support, you know, user-led research, but the, the user would have to stand to the same rigorous, you know, appraisal as any other academic. Sure, absolutely, yeah. And I, I'm not saying, you know, definitely not saying that doesn't happen. I just think that maybe it doesn't happen enough, I guess. And and I think another point to say about that, which does feel important, is that I think there are a lot of people who do have that lived experience, but if it's not openly acknowledged or used in a in a self-referential way then it you know it doesn't have the same impact and we could talk about that for in another podcast I'm sure mm. but um, I do think there's a difference between declared lived experience and undeclared lived experience and I think you know a lot of the times that undeclared lived experience happens is because there isn't the culture to support that still mm. in some areas 
anyway, we, we digress and uh, I mustn't get on my soapbox. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's such an important point, Katie. Yeah, really good to, that these things come up because they come up time and time again. And we, as we all know here, they're things that we discuss time and time again. Right, I, I will move on. Doreen, you've said a lot and, and given loads of examples which clearly show that the organisation you, you work for does, does value co-production as an approach. But what, what do you think the NIHR, the National Institute of Health Research, could do to ensure that it becomes, I guess, even more valued? What's there left to do, do you think? I would say lots, actually. <laughs> I think the first thing is there's still that question for me. Is it co-production we want to be valued or is it using the appropriate approach to involving and working with different stakeholders, you know, including patients, the public carers and, and service users. And I think that uh, where it comes to co-production, it's not, it's not a new thing. We, we've had, um, as I said, we've had a, a whole agenda around involving um, evidence users of which the public makes one of the stakeholders. But I think, I think within um, the patient and public involvement kind of arm, there needs to be funding for co-production where we um, accept that that's the best approach for that project. So I think there's, there's a bit of onus on the research team to actually demonstrate that for this particular project, the best way to achieve impact is by co-producing it. Um, and once that's been, that argument has been made, it's accepting on the part of funders that that might take more time and cost more and willing really to make that investment. Because it might be, for example, that consulting would be a cheaper approach. So I think there's an argument for value for money to be made and where that is made to actually fund it. And as I had said, you know, we do have examples of projects where that has been done um, and it's been justified. So I think it's not gang ho switching and, and saying the only thing we're going to fund is co-production because it might not be the appropriate thing to do. But I think we should be more open to the fact that co-produced research, despite taking more time and costing more, you know, is, is a really valuable approach for um, certain projects. And I think really to underpin this, there needs to be more um, evidence around the impact of co-production as opposed to other approaches. Because I think that's the only way that you're gonna win the hearts and minds um, of people to win them over to doing things in a more costly and, uh, way and, and you know, in, in a way that takes more time. I think that it's really important to focus on impact, value, and also for the, the general research community to value the outputs that are co-produced. So these are not necessarily always going to be peer-reviewed journals, but, I, but the team can actually decide on what they think will have an impact. And this, these, this could be, you know, artworks, blogs, vlogs, infographics, videos. There, there isn't a system within the research community, I think, that values those kind of outputs. And yet sometimes these outputs are what will have the most impact on people that will apply the findings from research. And then I think going back to Gary's point, one of the other things we could do um, is fund community organizations to work with researchers, because then you're, you're going out of the, this cycle of funding short-term projects, the project coming to an end, the people that you engage kind of being at a loose end. If you fund the people and the researchers go to the people, 
then I, I think that this will sustain the relationship because you might have rotating researchers, or you still have those community organizations. I think that, that those are some ways that um, you know, NIHR and the wider research community could ensure that uh, co-production becomes more valued. Thanks, Dr. I really like some of the points there. One of the points you made there about, um, for me, we're not ever suggesting, are we, that, that co-production is the gold standard and is the only way of doing research, but it's about making sure that he's valued as one way in appropriate circumstances um, of doing your research. And I also like your point there about um, valuing different outputs, because we always put an emphasis, don't we, on, for example, you know, having articles in referee journals, etc. And that may not be meaningful um, for some people. And there's other outputs that I think uh, should be uh, more valued um, than they are. And also your point about perhaps uh, having this ongoing engagement, I think, with communities. And I think that's very, very um, important. Katie, did you want to come in? comment there yeah I just I just think that ongoing engagement and, and working together is is just a bedrock of co-production because you, you hit the nail on the head I think Doreen you know we, we attach it to a project and that's all well and good and, and it is well and good but you know I, I think um, if you have something that's a continuous consistent engagement that can span not just individual research projects but you know the whole ethos of an organization or the research area or, or whatever you you take time then to build up those really important relationships and I think then um, you have a much firmer foundation from which to build and um, you're talking about sort of eva evaluation and the importance of a sort of evaluating impact which I think is another topic we could we could debate as well I think it is important but I think we should be careful not to get too hung up on it so that it stops us actually working together co-productively but all those things I think if you have a consistent approach and a regular interaction and engagement I think that can work absolute wonders. No I totally agree. Final question Doreen. Doreen I'm a genie if there was one <laughs> thing that you could wish for to further co-production what would it be? You don't look like a genie Gary yes I'll answer the question anyway. <laughs> Um, it would be to normalize it. You know, um, it's been around for a very long time. It's had many different names. As we say, you know, very good collaboration verges on co-production. But really, I think um, co-production, um, especially as outlined in, in you know, the, the guidance that the NHR has produced around co-production, that, you know, I, I have the privilege of working with you um, and Katie on, it would be great if that became the normal way that research teams work. And in a sense, I think it is possible. If, if you look back a few decades, academia was structured in a way where you had people working within a monodisciplinary context. So if you were an anthropologist who did anthropology and you didn't care about what everybody else was doing or what knowledge everybody else could bring to anthropology. Similar to health, you know, medicine was medicine and you worked with other medical people. But there, there has been a recognition that actually bringing those different disciplines together in interdisciplinary research brings benefits because you're bringing different knowledge bases together. I think the NIHR, what it is trying to really push is within that interdisciplinary context of valuing different knowledge bases, bring in the public perspective as well, because that's a really important knowledge base without which, you know, you've had major trials that have had millions of funding fail 
because people weren't consulted. You know, they didn't adhere, say, to the intervention because people didn't bother to talk to them to find out about whether they would take a certain drug or an intervention. Just very simple things, but all comes from the, um, I think, from the failing of trying to see things from the point of view of the, the person you're doing the research for. And you shouldn't be doing it for them. They should be involved in that discussion and be at that table where those decisions are being made. I think my vision, my wish is for this to be the normal way of working, because we all know that it's the best way um, of working. And I think linked to this, we've seen very kind of um, a, a reorganization, I would say, actually, in terms of how academia produces outputs from research from the research exercise framework, focusing so much on impact. And I think that the research exercise framework or the REF could actually be used as a venue where we can recognize impact and attach value to, as we were saying, co-produced research outputs. Because I think that, you know, this is what will really um, create a shift in the way that academia works, in the way that they reward academics um, and other partners as well. So I think it's it's a normalization um, and a change in value in the in the whole research community. Thank you, Doreen. As a genie, I'll get onto all of that straight away. So all that's left me to say is thank you so much, both of you. Thank you, Katie, for being my co-host today, and thank you, Doreen, for being such a wonderful um, guest on this podcast. And for listening, are, are, you, are you able to grant other wishes, Gary? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what, what did you have in mind, Doreen? <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you later. Okay, thank you. And if, and if you enjoyed this podcast, please do check out our other podcasts that are available from the RDS Southeast website, the Research Design Service Southeast website, and also on SoundCloud. And if you type in the search NIHR space RDS space SE. So thank you very much for listening. Cue the wonderful music. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.